0: This is The Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and we're running down some of the top stories of the week. Don't forget to check out The Daily Dive Monday through Friday for more news without the noise. The biggest political story of the week is Omarosa Manigault Newman releasing her newest book. It really means nothing in the broad spectrum of politics, but it's just so interesting. She's on the book tour now and releasing all sorts of secret tapes.
1: The book is called Unhinged, an Insider's Account of the Trump White House. In it, she details a lot of inflammatory things that go on in the White House, including the use of racial slurs against people who work there and spouses of people who work there. Some of the other kind of funnier stuff is that the White House has a tanning bed. President Trump uses it every morning so he can feel good all day and that she once walked in on President Trump chewing up a piece of paper and then swallowing it in the Oval Office.
0: Omarosa from her time on The Apprentice. She's kind of a villain. She's a media villain. And she has a really big credibility problem. Because of that, she said that she taped various conversations with a lot of people in the White House, including the president. Haven't we all wanted to be a fly on the wall yes. in some in these sensitive conversations? Oh, yeah. So the first piece of audio she ever released was actually when she was getting fired by Chief of Staff General John Kelly. Let's listen to that clip.
2: I'm only going to stay for a couple of minutes. These are lawyers we've got to talk to you about uh, leaving the white house it's come of my attention uh, over the uh, last few months that there's been some pretty in my opinion significant integrity issues related to you and use of government vehicles and some other issues they'll walk you through the legal aspects of this from my view there's, there's some money issues and other things but from my view the integrity issues are very serious uh, when we hold the people accountable in, in the military, I would I compare what I see here at the White House and, and other issues that I've had to deal with. This would be a, a pretty high level of, of accountability, meaning a court-martial. We're not suggesting any legal action here. Just stay with
0: Damn. That is some pretty serious stuff right there. And he's very vague about the allegations. He's like, you know what I'm talking about. And she's just kind of flabbergasted. With that, you're not supposed to have any recordings in the Situation Room, which is where John Kelly fired her. They're saying that she violated uh, non-disclosure agreements that she signed. So for that, we turn to Andrew Restuccia. He's a White House reporter for Politico, and he's telling us about the nondisclosure agreement that she signed, and they're moving into arbitration to hopefully settle this out.
3: Omarosa actually says that she signed two non non-disclosure agreements, one in 2003 when she was working on The Apprentice, or when she appeared on The Apprentice and another in 2016 when she worked on the presidential campaign. The NDA at issue now is the 2016 NDA. We actually obtained a copy of it and it prevents people from working on the campaign from disparaging or releasing confidential information about Trump, his business, his family members, including his grandchildren and, e- and even family members' companies. So now the Trump campaign is, is holding Omaros accountable for finding this document and then subsequently revealing all sorts of information about the campaign and, not, and obviously disparaging Trump and the people around him.
0: What is the wording like in those NDAs? Because one that I had seen some text of just seemed very broadly, and it basically says you can never, ever, ever say anything bad about Trump for the rest of your life. That's what it basically seems like.
3: The campaign's NDA basically does say that. It's in perpetuity, which, which means forever. Um, they're pretty strict terms. I talked to people who signed the NDA on the campaign. Some people didn't even really look at it that closely, thinking it was the sort of thing that was very common. But this is not common in the world of government. And, of course, White House staffers were pushed to sign a separate nondisclosure agreement, which restricted them from not only talking about classified information, which there are NDAs to prevent people from talking about classified information in the government, but this one went even further. They they couldn't even talk about confidential or private information about the president.
0: Omarosa generally has a credibility issue. That's why she's saying she made all these tapes so that she knows that, uh, you know, the media can't spin it another way. Yes,
2: I'm the kind of person who covers her own back. In Trump world, everyone lies. Everyone says one thing one day and they change their story the next day. I wanted to have this type of documentation so that in the event, I found myself in this position where, as you said, they're questioning my
0: credibility. From her time on The Apprentice and just her media life, she's always been this kind of villain. Then she made it to the White House. Everybody was kind of like, why, you know, why is she even there? But she is in the room for a lot of these things. She was in a lot of these discussions. That's why she has those tapes. What a breach of trust, really. I mean, she was recording everybody, it seemed like.
3: Yeah, I mean, and it's difficult to make the case, as the White House has tried to in the past, that, that she had no influence and she she had no interactions with the president. We know that that she that she has, and we have the tapes to prove it, right? She's had conversations with the president. Not only did she have access, but she was granted the highest possible salary that a government official in the White House can get, $179,000 a year. And that's on par with the White House Chief of Staff, the National Security Advisor. The White House is trying to, in some ways, rewrite history at this point by saying that she you know, she was this ineffectual person with that influence. And in fact, she, she had quite a bit of influence.
0: What is she on the hook for, for violating that NDA? I've read that she has about 14 days to respond to the demand for arbitration. Would they pull her book? What kind of things would she be responsible for doing?
3: We reported at Politico that the White House NDA, which Omarosa says she did not sign notably, that she did sign the one during the campaign, but not in the White House, did include language about restricting book sales and staffers' ability to write a book. But the campaign NDA did not have any of that language, so it's unlikely that the book would ever be pulled. It's also unclear exactly how uh, legally solid the NDA from the campaign is. And this is going to be, need to be worked out in, in an arbitration agreement between her lawyer and the lawyer that's representing the Trump campaign. So at this point, it's sort of unclear what the consequences might be. If there are consequences, they would be monetary in nature, I would imagine, versus, you know, some sort of criminal response.
0: Yeah, I think I saw that since the campaign is an ongoing organization, it holds through everything, basically. And that's kind of where they're trying to still hold her accountable, since, as you said, she didn't sign the one coming out of the White House. Omarosa said there's a lot of tapes, audio tapes that she made. So I guess as the book tour continues, there might be more stuff to hear.
3: I think that's true. Yeah, I think Omarosa, it's in her interest to release these tapes slowly and to build up the hoopla around her book.
0: You know, she's very smart. So she's playing the media just as the president would be playing the media and in hopes of uh, those higher book sales. So we'll see what happens. Andrew Restusha, White House reporter for Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I'm constantly fascinated by true crime. And one of the latest serial killers that we caught was the Golden State Killer. He went by many names, the East Area Rapist, the Diamond Knot Killer, the original Night Stalker. And he was also called the Visalia Ransacker. Joseph James DeAngelo, he's already been charged with 12 murders. This past week, they charged him with a 13th murder. This covered the time when he was the Visalia Ransacker. We spoke to Sam Stanton from the Sacramento Bee. He's been on this story from the beginning. And we talked to him about who his first victim was and what's next for the Golden State Killer.
2: I think that his crime spree began as the Visalia ransacker. This was someone who, from about April of 74 through December of 1975, broke into 100 homes in Visalia. And a lot of the uh, patterns that they saw in those burglaries match up with what they saw later in Sacramento when the East Area rapist crimes began. This person would go into these homes, take some items, move other items, ignore valuables and just make it known that an intruder had been inside the house. Sometimes. The uh, suspect would call the house later on. Authorities believe that he would stake out the homes well in advance so he'd know what the patterns for people coming and going. And then he typically would escape on a bicycle into the night.
0: So the new charge was in the murder of a man named Claude Snelling. I want to play a little clip of audio from his daughter, Elizabeth Hupp. She spoke to CBS News about it
2: that's when i heard my dad yell and the man with the ski mask pushed me to the ground turned shot my dad twice as he was coming through the back door he's always been my hero i would not be here today i'm sure of it if it hadn't been
0: for him so this was a night in september 1975 what happened that night
2: well she was 16 at the time and claude snelling her dad was a 45 year old uh, college professor who was awakened, in the middle of the night he heard a noise, and he went out toward the garage the carport and he saw a man in a ski mask trying to abduct his daughter, take her out of the house. And so he confronted the suspect who shot and killed Snelling. So that's the first incident of violence that's attributed to this suspect. The girl obviously survived unharmed, but the case went unsolved for you know almost 44 years until when uh, charges were filed. and. What they think happened is the suspect had burglarized the home two nights earlier and had stolen a bicycle. And he used that bicycle to uh, escape from the Snelling residence they found it a block away after the shooting. But they were able to trace the bullets that killed Snelling back to a gun that had been stolen in August of 75 in a previous burglary.
0: It's so creepy to know that he had already made it all the way in and out of the house, pretty much undetected to the family. And as you say, they connected all this other evidence to him. There was no DNA evidence involved. I know he was ultimately caught later as a result of DNA Connecting the DNA dots, but this was not the case here.
2: That's right. But the um, district attorney and the police chief here in say that there is physical evidence. They have witnesses who saw the suspect at the time of the crime. Who they've shown composites to and photos of Mungelo from that period. Who supposedly have identified him. And they also say that they have physical evidence, which they won't discuss, of course, but something other than DNA.
0: And you had mentioned that he had ransacked over 100 homes, but this is the only charge that they were able to make because the statute of limitations had expired for pretty much everything else. What happened after that? Because it was about three months or so later that the crimes there in Visalia stopped. He obviously moved on, but there was an officer who had an altercation with him.
2: Right. What happened is Visalia police by then were extraordinarily concerned. And so they had stakeouts out all over town at night. And there was an officer, Bill McGowan, who was in a garage when he saw someone looking through the window at a woman. And he confronted that suspect. That suspect affected some kind of effeminate voice saying something to the effect of, please don't hurt me, and then pulled out a gun and fired at McGowan. And luckily, the bullet hit McGowan's flashlight. The suspect got away and McGowan survived and got a look at him. And so that provided authorities the first Good composite description of the Visalia ransacker. But what happened after that is the crime stopped there. They never had any more in Visalia, and suddenly in Sacramento, within a couple of months, the East Area Rapist series of crimes began.
0: The crimes intensified in their viciousness and and frequency, I guess, because they, you know, he's charged with the the 12 other murders and 50 rapes up and down the state after that. What's next for Joseph James D'Angelo? He's back in court in September, I believe, but prosecutors haven't even decided where they're going to be holding all these court hearings. In
2: the next month or so, the five DAs from the counties where there are murder counts are expected to decide where they're going to try this. Their hope is that they can do it all in one county, in one courthouse, and that prosecutors from each county will work as a team to prosecute him there was some thought early on that it likely would head south to Santa Barbara one of the counties where there's more murders and DNA evidence the two murders in Sacramento there's no DNA evidence on the one in Tulare there's no DNA and so they may move it south just because the evidence is stronger but no decision's been made on that yet
0: Is this it for him, or are there any other open cases that they might be trying to connect to, D'Angelo?
2: It sounds like this is the only one left in Tulare that they consider a serious possibility, but there are some in the East Bay that are still under investigation, and so it's possible that there could be more charges.
0: Sam Stanton, reporter for The Sacramento Bee, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I think the most funny, not funny story has to come out of San Francisco. There's a problem with homelessness out there. And the real problem happens when there ends up being a lot of poop on the streets. And we're not talking about animal poop. It's human poop. So the thing that they're trying to do out there to take care of the problem is institute a cleanup crew that's going to go around every day with power washers and clean the sidewalks. They're calling it the poop patrol. So we're going to speak to Heather Knight. She's a columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle. She works out of City Hall there. She spoke to the mayor, London Breed, about all this stuff. Here's our interview.
1: They're literally calling it the Poop Patrol. It's going to be a team of five people who go out in some kind of truck with a steam cleaner. And currently, public works crews respond to complaints when neighbors see it on their sidewalks outside and call. Then they'll come and clean it. But this new patrol will proactively go out looking for poop to try to clean it off the sidewalks.
0: Looking in your article, you said that their shifts are going to begin in the afternoon after the city starts losing its sheen from overnight cleanup. So they're already doing cleanups overnight. They have crews dedicated to that?
1: We have a really big public works department with tons of cleaners whose job is to keep our sidewalks clean. And they're out there overnight and in the alleys cleaning before, you know, business is open. But it doesn't take very long for the streets to start looking pretty shabby again. So these crews will go out in the afternoons.
0: Share with us some of the numbers of how many calls the city gets in response to poop being found on the streets.
1: Yeah, we did the calculating and there were more than 14,000 calls made complaining about feces between January 1st and this past Monday. And if my math is correct, that's about 65 calls every day about this problem in San Francisco.
0: Wow. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's tough. And, And, you know, San Francisco is such a tightly packed city. There's a lot of foot traffic all the time. So, yeah, I mean, I can imagine how big of a problem this is. Where did this idea come from? I know that the mayor, London Breed, was talking about it a little bit. How did they come to this conclusion that this is the answer to that problem?
1: Well, they just get so many complaints. I mean, residents all over the city are frustrated with the conditions of our streets and sidewalks and call 311, which is our you know, um, kind of customer complaint line, making these complaints all the time. And I think they're just trying to come up with new solutions and creative ways to solve it. I interviewed the mayor about this, and I think it was the first time a mayor has ever used the word poop with me. But she is new in office, and I think she wants to deal with these quality of life issues pretty quickly. So residents see a difference immediately.
0: How long has she been in office now? Just since mid-July. This is one of the first things right up on the docket because she wants a clean city. I'm sure everybody wants a clean city. You guys do also have there in San Francisco these things called uh, pit stop toilets that are around the city. There's about 22 of them around the city, and they did a lot about a million dollars to construct some new ones there as well.
1: These are toilets that have existed, but they were never monitored before this pit stop program started and then would be used as places to go inside and do drugs or other unsavory things. So instead, the city put monitors outside to make sure they're being used just as toilets are supposed to be used. And there's 22 around the city, and they're opening another five pretty soon. The problem is that they're only monitored till late afternoon or evening, and then sometimes they're just shut down entirely. So it's really hard if you're a homeless person in San Francisco to find anywhere to use the bathroom at night.
0: It doesn't seem practical that it wouldn't be open at night because that's a round-the-clock business that things need to be yep. taken care of. So, But then it comes with extra costs. Like you said, security would need to be positioned there or these monitors would need to be positioned there, and it becomes a larger issue. Has there been any action taken to take care of this problem beyond just the poop patrol and more pit stop toilets around the city?
1: One of my favorite nonprofits that... If listeners are wondering where they can donate to make a difference on these kinds of issues, it's called Lava May, and it was founded in San Francisco to turn old buses and trucks into mobile shower stalls and toilets, and so they drive around the city with a whole schedule there all over the city every day, and they allow homeless people to come inside and take showers, use the bathroom, use some nice toiletries, get themselves cleaned up because they think that that is directly related to feeling human and dignified and being able to go interview at jobs or whatever else you need to do. So they're um, really successful and they've expanded to Oakland and Los Angeles
0: recently. I live in Los Angeles right now and we're also dealing with a homelessness problem. A lot of the conversation right now is centering around housing for the homeless and finding locations that would be able to either convert buildings or construct some new stuff for this. Is that also a conversation that's happening in San Francisco?
1: Everybody knows that the answer to homelessness is permanent supportive housing, which is housing with case managers and social workers on site so people can get help with substance abuse problems or looking for jobs or whatever else they need help with. The problem is it's so expensive to build them and we have so little land available in San Francisco. It actually costs pretty unbelievable, but it costs $750,000 to build one unit of affordable housing in San Francisco, so it's just a really daunting task.
0: Well, I'm sure we'll be seeing pictures and videos of the Poop Patrol once they actually (laughs) get started. Heather Knight, columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. All right, that's it for us this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.